Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is part two of a three-part series that gives you an inside look at how the United Nations is commemorating its 75th anniversary this year. Rather than holding a big party or jubilee, the UN is instead embarking on a listening tour. The UN is seeking feedback from as many people in as many communities as possible, all around three big questions. What kind of world do we want to create? Are we on track? And what is needed to bridge the gap? Here in the United States, the United Nations Association is hosting what are called global consultations around these questions. They are gathering groups to solicit input that will be relayed to leadership at the United Nations ahead of a major meeting in September to mark the UN's anniversary. In part one of this series, I moderated a global consultation that discussed those big questions, but using the lens of gender equality. In today's episode, I moderate a consultation about climate change in the environment. This episode kicks off with my 15-minute interview with Julie Cicada, who is the executive director of the U.S. Climate Alliance, and this is a coalition of U.S. states committed to climate action. That conversation focuses on the Paris Agreement and specifically what subnational groups like individual states can do to advance the climate change agenda in the face of inaction at the federal level. After the interview concludes, the consultation begins. And for this podcast, I edited down the consultation to include some of the questions and answers discussed. A big thank you to UNAUSA for partnering with the podcast around this consultation and around our three-part series. The next episode in the series will focus on global health issues. And now here is my conversation with Julie Cicada, followed by the Global Consultation on Climate and the Environment. Enjoy. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Thank you, UNA USA, for having me moderate today's session. Uh, As Rachel mentioned, today's episode is being recorded as a live taping of the Global Dispatches podcast, which is a world affairs show that focuses on some of the big issues of the day. And certainly climate, climate change, and the environment is one of the defining issues of our era. 
Uh, to help frame and kick off these, this consultation, I am very pleased to speak with Julie for the next 15 minutes or so about many of the ideas and issues that are on the agenda for the consultation. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, Julie, welcome. Uh, I wanted to kick off by asking you to explain the Paris Agreement, the significance of the Paris Agreement, and some of the key provisions in it. Why should we know and care about the Paris Agreement? Great. Hi, Mark. And it's so nice to get to virtually do this podcast with you. And thanks to Rachel and the team for inviting me to join this discussion. Um, I mean, in terms of why we should care about the Paris Agreement, um, I, I really truly believe that climate change is probably the greatest challenge that this generation has faced. Um, it's unpredictable. It's changing the way that we see the world every day, it's impacting our food supplies or security. And so it's critically important that we prioritize taking action on climate change. And so because greenhouse gases are, um, you know, they mix well in the atmosphere, it means that unlike more conventional uh, air pollution, any emissions that countries emit actually have a global impact. It's not just a local impact. And so it means that you actually require everybody to take action if you're going to actually have an impact at that local level, which means that a global agreement is the, the way that we need to move. Paris was particularly important and historic because it was the first time that we had a global agreement where all countries were required to take action. So if you remember, you know, the predecessor to the Paris Agreement was the Kyoto Protocol, and that set binding targets for developed countries, but essentially didn't require action from developing countries. Um, and although it's developed countries that historically have been the major emitters, countries like China today are actually the world's largest emitters. And so what you want to do is have an agreement where we can work across borders to help everybody have strong economic growth while we're actually decoupling like, you know, our GDP and our carbon intensity. So getting everybody to grow together while also reducing emissions. And Paris was the first agreement that allowed us all to do that. So we are now five years into the Paris Agreement. Uh, are we on track? Is the world on track to meet some of the goals embedded in the agreement? Oh, definitely not. <laughs> we're actually like, yeah. we're we're quite far, unfortunately. So, um, so the and and Paris wasn't perfect, right? So. Paris essentially set a temperature goal and said that we need to keep temperature increases below two degrees Celsius with efforts towards one and a half degrees. And the reason that they identified that as a goal is because that's when you start to see pretty catastrophic impacts from climate change. Um, and even the difference between two and one and a half degrees are things like you know, losing most of your coral reefs versus the complete loss of coral reefs, right? It's millions more exposed to extreme weather events like uh, heat and drought. And so it's looking at the temperature at which we start to see those those impacts. Um, and with Paris, you had 189 countries that joined the agreement, all saying that they would take action. The, the 
the agreement itself provides flexibility so each country can set what its greenhouse gas reduction target is going to be, but then there's rigidity around the reporting mechanism. So everybody has to report on their progress. They have to use similar, similar methodology so that we understand how they're actually accounting for their emissions. And then every so many years, like in 2020, they're, suppo- they're invited to come forward and actually increase their ambition. Despite that, we are seeing that, you know, first of all, the climate targets that were submitted under the Paris process collectively are not enough to actually stay within a two degree temperature increase. In addition to that, many countries are not actually on track to even hit those those climate targets. I think it'll be especially interesting now with the global recession to see how those how those projections adjust. Um, As you can imagine, Mark, if you're seeing less economic activity, so you're seeing less power being used, fewer people driving, all of that actually helps to reduce emissions in the near term, but it's not the type of transformational change that we need to actually get on track with reducing, keeping temperatures between that that two-degree goal. Uh, So the Trump administration had signaled that it seeks to withdraw from participating in the Paris Agreement. Uh, but that, it seems, is a federal government decision. But, you know, as you mentioned earlier, you know, the, you know, the ultimate source of the greenhouse gases in our atmosphere come from individual places. And here in the United States, in our federalized system, states presumably have a big role to play. Can you just describe the role of states right now in terms of meeting some of the goals embedded in the Paris Agreement and how, despite perhaps inaction at the federal level, states are now taking the lead? Absolutely. Well, I would say that states have always been in the lead. And so that's not only on climate change, but on, um, you know, rights for gay couples to get married. It's on health care. So most of the issues where we've been most progressive across the country have first and foremost been started off by states. And that's the same for climate change. So, you know, states like California have 40 years of history and actually being sort of the front runners on climate. Um, the withdrawal from from Paris, which the Trump administration triggered last year, will enter into effect the day after the U.S. election. Um, I think that's, a, been... that's just maybe perhaps important to emphasize that mm-hmm. the um, the mechanisms of the Paris Agreement don't permit the immediate withdrawal of the United States. Rather, there's a uh, time lapse, and it just happens to be that the day after the election is the day that the U.S. could formally withdraw. Correct. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for for these states, um, the with the intent to withdraw from Paris, I think, was a mobilizing force. And so what I've seen that's different is, you know, even though states have already historically worked together for quite some time, it was a way for them to rally around con- supporting the Paris Agreement and reminding the world and Americans that U.S. governors stand behind not just the Paris Agreement, but more importantly, the issue of climate change and the recognition of how important it is for them to take action. This group of states in particular who are working through the U.S. Climate Alliance are roughly 40% of U.S. emissions. That doesn't sound like a lot. I've heard some criticisms that, you know, what about the other 60%? But 40% of U.S. emissions is equal to the sixth largest global emitter. So when you think about the impact that this group of states actually has in reducing global emissions, it's actually quite significant. 
Um, and so what they've been focused on, they essentially, when they joined the Climate Alliance, agreed to meet their share of what was the U.S. climate target, and that's a 26 to 28% reduction from 2005 levels by 2025. And so they're putting in place the policies they need to get to at least that goal, if not more, and they report publicly every year on what that progress has been. It's funny. It sounds like it's a Paris agreement among the states. They have their yeah. own, yeah. They they have their own, um, you know, locally determined um, goals and locally determined policies, and they kind of use a peer pressure mechanism to showcase to the other members of the alliance uh, what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I I joke sometimes too that it's not even peer pressure. I think it's actually FOMO, right? fear of missing out. So nobody wants to be the last one to do something. Um, It's all about sort of demonstrating that you are leading, that you're taking action. And what's awesome about many of the policies that they're putting in place is that it's not only about tackling climate change, it's about protecting the health of their communities. It's about better quality of life. And so I think especially with the current global pandemic, we've seen that air pollution exacerbates respiratory diseases, right? COVID is a respiratory disease. And so when you're reducing your transportation pollution, it has both a climate impact, but it has a really important health impact, especially for vulnerable communities. So we're seeing just a lot of support at the community level and across the United States, across both parties um, for climate action. It just unfortunately doesn't translate necessarily to um, to Congress sometimes or to the White House. So, so can you give me some examples of states that are enacting interesting and innovative policies? You mentioned uh, your coalition is a bipartisan coalition of governors. So maybe can you pick a, a Republican and a Democrat who uh, are enacting policies in their states uh, mm-hmm. that are um, aligning with the Paris Agreement? Sure. Well, so um, it's important to note that Paris includes both mitigation and resilience. So I'll give a couple of different examples. Um, so uh, Governor Baker in Massachusetts, for example, has this a Republican, tri- a Republican. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So he has a program called the MVP. I think it stands for um, municipal. Well, I'm forgetting what the acronym is for. But anyhow, but it's it's a program where essentially the state has provided grants to local communities. They also provide them with technical assistance in order for those communities to build out their resilience. So they create action plans for how they're going to become more resilient. And then the state also provides them with grants in order to help them implement those plans. Um, With the Climate Alliance, the states have gotten together and they're learning from each other. And there's a number of other states that have actually started to look into ways in which they could adapt the Massachusetts program for their own communities. You know, Massachusetts has sent uh, some of their people over to other states to train them on those programs. So you see a lot of learning, like on the resilience side. Um, When it comes to mitigation actions, I mean, we've already got, I think, eight states that have um, 100% clean energy goals in legislation with another 11 that have proposed them through executive action. That's huge. It's across the country. Um, Again, states like Massachusetts also were one of the most recent to adopt a carbon neutrality goal in mid-century, which aligns with what the IPCC tells us is necessary to stay within a one and a half degree temperature increase. So, So Massachusetts has that? Correct. Interesting. Do other states? Yeah, so there's about, I think, five or six that already have carbon neutrality goals. And most of the Climate Alliance states actually have 
deep decarbonization goals, which means it's somewhere between a 75 to 95 percent decrease um, by mid-century. That's that's really interesting to me. I mean, that's sort of like what a lot of Scandinavian countries uh, have embedded in their kind of climate goals is to go climate neutral sometime mid-century and then, you know, climate negative. But you're saying states are are doing it here. And presumably some of these states, at least all these many of the states together, have the sort of size and economic output of a country like, I don't know, Finland. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's why we, we actually do cooperate with other countries. And I think what is interesting is that for many of our states, we have some like a partnership with the EU, for example, where we're, we're looking at how you can finance resilience. Um, and most of our states have economies that are comparable to European countries, right? And so it's easy for these states to be able to kind of work at that level. Um, but I think even to your previous question, when we look at on the mitigation side, like I think an interesting example are, you know, states like Colorado and New Mexico, where they're states that actually have oil and gas resources that are an important part of the economy, they also have some of the most progressive policies in terms of regulating those methane emissions. So they're actively trying to mitigate emissions from their upstream oil and gas operations, right? So um, it's just to show that there's a lot of different ways in which you can mitigate emissions and there's no like cookie cutter approach. Each state has to look at their own, their people, their culture, their values, and also economically what's important to them and figure out what is the best pathway forward. The important thing is that commitment to change. So you mentioned earlier this question of, of financing some of these strategies. You know, one thing that we've seen already from the COVID-19 pandemic is that it is blowing just giant holes in mm-hmm. state budgets. I, I mean, how have you seen that um, these, these budgetary pressures impacting how governors and state legislatures are approaching or assessing their prior commitments to climate issues? Yeah, and I would say that it's not so much that it's um, reassessing their prior commitments. I think there's a few different things. So one is, first and foremost, you're you're exactly right. I mean, we are seeing an unprecedented loss of revenue at the state level. And so first and foremost, they're concerned with just being able to provide critical government services and are working with Congress to try to get the funds that they need to backfill those revenues. But in addition to that, there's also an opportunity, right? And so In order for us to actually meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, we need to start talking about a transformational change to our economy. It's not enough to just put people in electric vehicles. It's not enough to just get renewable energy deployment. We actually need to rethink our systems, right? How do we improve building efficiency? How do we enhance our natural and working lands to pull carbon out of the atmosphere? And so they're thinking more comprehensively about it. And so with the as we start to move into the recovery phase, there's an opportunity for us to look at how we make those investments in our critical infrastructure. And so rather than just building more roads, how do we make sure that those infrastructure dollars are going towards modernizing, decarbonizing, and enhancing the resilience of our infrastructure. So instead of just building out a road, can we instead invest in EV charging stations? Can we expand tax credits so that people can affordably purchase electric vehicles? Can we actually help low-income families improve the energy efficiency of their homes so that you're putting more money back in the pocket of American families rather than putting that into their energy bills? Those are the kinds of things that they're thinking about. The other opportunity is that um, as we're thinking about how we're getting 
like remobilizing the workforce, there's a tremendous opportunity to get people into jobs that are helping to build out this infrastructure, um, whether that's people coming into your homes to put in place energy efficiency or getting into factories to build out electric vehicles, right? And so they're starting to think about how do you make sure that the infrastructure investments are also tied to getting people into pathways, into jobs that exist today. Uh, well, Julie, that is all the time we have for this portion of the consultation and our conversation. Thank you so much. How can people follow your work? And more importantly, how can they follow progress at the state level? Great. Yeah, that's a great question. So we actually have a Twitter handle at US Climate. So you can follow us on Twitter. Um, feel free to also visit our website. We have updates all the time. So anytime a new policy comes out at the state level, we'll post it on Twitter as well as on our website. So yeah, it's probably the easiest way. <laughs> all right. Thank you so much, Julie. Thanks. Have a great one. Uh, okay, so we are now going to move into the consultation phase of this consultation. Um, a couple of things to note, uh, as Rachel mentioned earlier, this is being recorded for an episode of the Global Dispatches podcast. Uh, some of your answers, if you choose to speak uh, during the uh, question and answer session, will be included in an episode of the podcast. Uh, so to start off, uh, the goal of this conversation is to pose three big questions. What kind of future do we want to create? Are we on track to secure a better world? And what action is needed to help us achieve a brighter future? And for today, we will answer these three questions with a climate and environment lens. Looking at climate and the environment through the UN Sustainable Development Goals, what will the world look like in 25 years if current trends continue? And please make your comments in the Q&A box. And if you would want to share your response with everyone, and I'd love to hear from you, uh, please raise your hand so Farah can call on you. We actually do have um, Katie. I'm going to unmute your mic. Hi, yeah, my name is Katie. Um, I'm a current student at Pomona College in Claremont, California, but I'm from a small town in Texas. And um, something that's been on my mind lately Obviously, as we've seen everything that's going on in the news in the U.S., uh, I think that it's really essential that the climate movement and the climate and environment movement and the United Nations Office for Environmental Protection really takes racism into account. And we're not going to be able to solve the climate crisis without talking about race and without putting these issues together because they're linked inextricably and people of color have been telling us that. Um, so, I mean, in the next 25 years, I feel like if we don't address some of the other structural problems that we're not going to be able to achieve the SDGs. Thank you for having me with my question. I'm David Flint, professor of sustainability at Adler University for our graduate students there in the Masters of Public Administration program. My question for myself and my students is basically, although many renewable energies can utilize similar physical settings to be effective, wind, solar, geothermal, um, I'm wondering over the next 25 years, how can we avoid competing for the same real estate, let alone governmental funding, because they're kept separate in a sense? And can these 
multiple renewables uh, work in concert and in combination with each other on the same said real estate as a part of our infrastructure going forward. Thank you. Okay, so let's uh, move on. Uh, In this next section, we will discuss if we are on track to advance progress on climate and the environment. And again, we're going to take this to the poll. Uh, Which of these global trends do you think will most affect the future of climate and the environment? And you can choose up to three. I'll let you have a read and then you can enter your response. And I'll share with everyone the results. Okay. Oh, the, the winner by a wide margin, if, if uh, winning is uh, a word I could use, but the most popular response was the breakdown in relations between countries, followed by risks to health, uh, particularly important uh, given that we are in a pandemic. Uh, would anyone like to, to discuss their response? And Farah, if anyone has their hands raised, please now feel free to call on them. Great. Aqua. Well, first of all, uh, I'd like to mention that how the Secretary General of the United Nations, Antonio Guterres, always has mentioned and emphasized the fact that um, in our fight against the climate change and the, envi- and the environment issues, what we need more than anything is solidarity and unity within the international community. I think um, in the recent couple of years, ever since we had um, the, the inauguration of Donald Trump and, and Brexit in Europe and some of the issues in Africa and Asia. It just shows how these breakdowns in relations among different states could jeopardize their solidarity in terms of making progress in that fight. And I think this is one of the biggest issues that we're facing in, in today's world. Thank you. Uh, so we are now going to move on to our final set of questions. In improving climate and the environment on a local, national, and global level, please use the Q&A box to answer the following questions. Question one, what forms of action and collaboration are needed from our elected officials? The second question is, what actions should we take as individuals? And the third question is, what can What more can organizations like UNA, USA do to help achieve progress on climate and the environment? Scott, uh, you have your hand raised and you are unmuted. I wanted to call attention to the issue of economic inequality and how difficult it's been to get traction on climate change as global and national levels of inequality have been stressing both domestic and international arenas. So I'd like to see a lot more attention um, focus on that. In terms of what we need to get elected officials to do, I think we need to take seriously this 1.5 degrees Celsius goal that was established at the Paris Agreement in 2015. And we need our elected officials to move more rapidly to achieve that goal. Um, For individual actions, there's lots of different carbon trackers out there that help people to understand how much they're contributing to the problem and therefore what areas of their life they can focus on, like reducing their commute or changing their diet or adjusting thermostats in home. I mean, there's a long list of things, but I think as individuals, the best thing to do is to 
do your homework, uh, use a carbon tracker and see what that tells you. Um, yes, Madeline. Great. Um, so I'll echo what Akor said and, and kind of spread it out between the three questions. Um, I think for elected officials, it's the responsibility to hold our, our companies accountable with policies and, and regulation um, and also thinking to our, our cities and our communities and what smart and sustainable cities look like. Uh, second, for actions for individuals, really that education and using our voice through our purchasing power. So, you know, translating that into how we're acting as a voice to what we hope to see from companies um, in making a change toward climate action. And then third, organizations like UNA, USA, really helping to educate uh, people and also serve as a voice for people to our elected officials and an advocacy approach. Are there any others? No. Okay, so let's uh, conclude then. Um, I that was there was a lot of um, a lot of participation. Thank you all. Uh, the point of this is to solicit your feedback. Thank you all for participating in this UN seventy five consultation on climate and the environment. Uh, your answers are important. Your feedback is important. Thank you. Uh, as a reminder, this was recorded as an episode of the Global Dispatches podcasts. Some of your answers may be included in an episode of the podcast. Uh, to subscribe, please go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right, a big thank you to UNA USA, and a big thank you in particular to those UNA USA members who participated in this consultation. Stay tuned for the next episode in this series coming soon. Bye.